Well, as mentioned, you can turn to the book of Esther. We're in Esther tonight. Esther, in some regard, is maybe the greatest story ever told. You know, today, we're inundated by stories with the proliferation of television and movies. The amount of fictional stories being told is staggering. People have a good story. That's why books keep being written and movies kept, keep getting made. It's been said, though, throughout all history, all stories boil down to seven basic plot points. They're known as overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, and rebirth. It seems mostly to be the case. There's a lot of things that are recycled. As Solomon has once said, there's nothing new under the sun. People are very desperate to tell some new intriguing story that everyone will love, but new is very hard to come by. I think if you want some of the best stories, you should look to the old. There are hundreds of timeless classics that have proven themselves tried and true. The new is not necessarily greater than old, and fiction is not necessarily greater than history. In my opinion, the greatest stories ever told are those that were actually true. We love, for example, science fiction today, but we know nothing about them is true, and it really provides a disconnect and prevents the story from, from truly impacting you. But when you hear an equally gripping story and then you learn, oh, this actually happened, it takes that story to another level when it comes to impact. In that moment, the unbelievable becomes believable because what you're watching or reading was true. And I think that's what you get with the book of Esther, which, like I said, some have called maybe the greatest story ever told. Esther easily rivals the ancient Greek classics and comedies and tragedies. Esther itself, you might call it a rags-to-riches story, plus a defeating the monster story. And there are some common themes to all story, but the fact that this is not fiction, this is history. This actually happened, and God's hand of providence saw it through, really brings Esther to another level. You know, if you have not read Esther before, do yourself a favor tonight, tomorrow, give it a read-through. And then go ahead and watch one of the movie adaptations, because there are several out there. It's almost like this book was written to be an ancient screenplay. Nevertheless, this is part of inspired scripture. It's written for a reason. Esther caps off what we refer to as the historical narrative books of the Old Testament. But as we keep saying over and over throughout this time, this is not just history. It is history. This is all historical, but written as part of scripture, it's, it's more than history. There's a message communicated with all of these books of the Old Testament. It's not just story. It's God's timeless truth written for all of his people. We're going to study tonight this book of Esther and find out what that is. So let's begin with some of that basic background. The title of this book is Esther. It's true in the Hebrew version, the Greek version. It's always been known as Esther. Along with Ruth, the only books of the Old Testament named after women. It's part of the, the Megaloth, which is known as the Five Scrolls. The, the Jews clumped five books together, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. And they read these five books on, on five separate feasts throughout the year. And Esther, can you guess, was always read at the Feast of Purim, which we will learn originates in the book of Esther. Now, the author is unknown. It suggested it was Mordecai, a key figure here, or Ezra or Nehemiah. We just don't know. The author is clearly familiar with Persian history, Persian customs. He had access to the royal records of the Persian Empire. He knew that the court system there. So someone up in the ladder in the Persian Empire. 
but clearly dis- displays a Jewish pride, a Jewish nationalism at the same time. New Hebrew customs. We have no direct evidence, so we, we just call it anonymous, but it does seem like Mordecai would fit the bill when it comes to the requirements for the author. Now, I should point out that I do believe Esther is historical narrative and not fiction. There are some who, who contend that Esther is just a work of fiction, historical fiction, mostly because the, the events are so unbelievable. The amount of what some would call coincidences are staggering. But it is written as historical narrative. The author includes many chronological references. And the author points the readers to historical records current in his day as a source of validation. So whoever's writing this wanted it to be taken as, as serious, as true. You check the records of King Ahasuerus. You'll find out. Now, the audience of Esther is for Israel after the exile. Pretty general audience, but... Some Jews had returned to the land of Palestine, but most of them had not. There were three returns, but in in the big picture, most of the Jews did not return to the Holy Land. They just remained scattered, and to this day, there are Jews scattered all throughout the world. And this, it's as Esther is sending a a special message to them. We saw 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah had a special special message to the Jews who were returning to the land. But it seems like in the canon, God didn't leave out all those Jews who were going to stay in Gentile nations. Esther has a word, an important word for those Jews who were going to remain scattered. We'll see that to come. The date of this book, or the events at least, 483 to 473 BC. It features the king Ahasuerus of Persia, or you might know him as Xerxes. And it's kind of 10 years in the middle of his reign. And this takes us pretty close to the end of Old Testament history. You know, the the amount of history the Old Testament covers. After Esther, you just have the time periods of Ezra and Nehemiah, Malachi, and, and that's it. That's the end of the Old Testament. So this is pretty close to the end of the Old Testament story. Now let's talk setting. Esther is truly a unique book in the Bible. And that it takes place entirely in Persia. We're away away from the Holy Land entirely in this book. In fact, Jerusalem, the temple, the land of Palestine, they're not even mentioned in the book of Esther. It's a very Gentile setting through and through. As we know well, Israel and Judah were taken captive. Many were displaced in the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians themselves were conquered by the Persians in 539 B.C., And the Persian Empire was one of the greatest ancient empires. It lasted from 539 to 331 BC. That's more than the length of the Assyrian and the Babylonian Empire put together. And did you know that the ancient Persian Empire was the largest ancient empire, technically bigger than ancient Rome when it comes to the amount of territory they controlled? This is a massive ancient empire. Now, some Jews returned to the land that was under the first Persian king, Cyrus, 538 BC. And so Jews came back, they rebuilt the temple, learned about some of that in Ezra. Esther takes place about 60 years after that, but still in that capital city. So we're not in the Holy Land. Esther is 60 years after Jews have gone back, but a whole bunch are still scattered. They're still in Persia, and that's where Esther takes place. The returns of Ezra and Nehemiah from the same city will take place in another 
generation that's to come. Now we have this king here, the main king featured, Ahasuerus. He's a strong leader, we'll find, but easily swayed. He's no worshiper of God. In fact, he doesn't even flinch at giving an order to exterminate all of the Jewish people. Now, speaking of, if you don't know the background to the book of Esther, that, that's kind of what's going on here. You, you need to know that. Let me further introduce you to the cast. You have the main king, King Ahasuerus, who's the king of the whole Persian empire. He's the monarch, essentially the dictator of the Persian empire. He's joined by his wife, Queen Vashti, but she proves unruly and defiant. So in the first chapter, he gets rid of her. And this creates a need for a new queen. And if you don't know, well, that's who Esther is. She eventually gets chosen to be the new queen, this unassuming Jew. In fact, even more than that, Esther herself was orphaned in the, in the land of Persia. She was reigned by her uncle Mordecai, who was another main figure. But Esther herself was chosen to be queen. When she became queen, her uncle Mordecai rose to prominence. Mordecai is a man who's intensely devoted to the welfare of his people, the Jews. But he himself was fiercely opposed by this man, Haman. Haman absolutely hated Mordecai, hated all the people of the Jews. And so Haman is really the, the diabolical arch, archvillain in this story. He hatches a plot, not just to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews in the entire empire. Like talking an extermination of all the Jews in the whole empire. That's the thought here. That's the risk. If you thought Hitler was the first person to try and exterminate the Jewish people, you're wrong. It's happened it's a, it's, it's, it's had, at attempts to happen uh, many times throughout world history. And we'll find an Esther. It almost worked. It came this close to actually taking place. But through the cunning intervention of Esther or Mordecai, and of course, ultimately God, his plans failed. And more than failed, they were completely reversed, as we'll see. And that's what makes Esther so intriguing, all these plot twists. And it's not just a plot twist. It's a total plot reversal. Uh, separate places throughout the story that Everything just takes a quick 180 in a way the reader wouldn't even expect and how things flip on their head in a way that just surprises you. And it's those types of surprises that make for a good story. And then, of course, being true, like I said, it's why Esther rises to the top of the list of such a great uh, book of the Bible and, uh, and a story at that. Now, let's move into a bit of a, an outline of synopsis. I think the best thing to do to help introduce you further to Esther, we've got to walk through a bit of the storyline. It, it's just, it's presented to us as a story, a historical narrative. There's not direct teaching. This is just narrative. And so if you don't know the basic storyline, it's not going to make a lot of sense to you. And sometimes as we go through these Old Testament books, I'll just cover a few highlights, a few key chapters, a few key themes, but Especially when we have this type of narrative, the best way is just to walk through the main story. So, so let's do that. You know, a quick basic outline. The first two chapters, you have the rise of Esther. Chapters 3 through 7, the fall of Haman. And chapters 8 through 10, the survival of the Jews. This is that the simplest of outlines. The rise of Esther, the fall of Haman, the survival of the Jews. But let's, let's walk through a little bit. You can open Esther 1 or Esther 2. In chapter 1, we'll just summarize. It opens up describing the splendor of the Persian Empire. And, and again, read that. The, the Persian Empire was opulent, over the top. The king gives a, 
a most opulent banquet for his princes. You know, it only lasts 180 days. His queen Vashti, or his, his, queen, his wife, Queen Vashti, she threw her own banquet for all the women in the royal house. And at the very end of the, this long banquet and celebration that the king wanted his, his wife, the Queen Vashti, to basically be dolled up, put on her crown, and be paraded out in front of him and his princes to show her off. And she refused. Verse 12, she refused to come out. She stood him up, and the king's anger burned. She directly disobeyed an order of the king, and he really was like the dictator. And so the king and his court decide, what are they going to do with the queen? I mean, she directly disobeyed an order of the king. And you can read how they reason together in chapter 1. They're basically saying, if we let this slide, all the women in the kingdom are going to start talking back to their husbands and disobeying. You can read verse 18 later, for example. So they decide it's best to depose the queen and give her uh, her position to another Chapter 1, of course, is just setting up the story. By the end of the chapter, we find a new queen must be found. And you can probably guess who that's going to be. Chapter 2 begins the search for the queen. And the king seems like a pretty shallow guy. He just gives a search for all the pretty young virgins in the land. Just all the provinces, just send us, send them your way. Or send them, send them their way. And so the, the search goes out. And here, though, we're introduced to our main characters, verses 5 through 7. Chapter 2 says, that Now there was at the citadel in Susa, that's where this is taking place, a Jew whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. The mention of her beauty already uh, leads us to believe that she will be chosen for this selection of a future queen, which seems like it was mostly just based on looks from what we know from the king here. She already finds favor. Verses 8 and 9, she is chosen to be among really the harem, the king's harem that all these virgins, they go to for a year. And they get cosmetics, they get makeup, they get treatment. Just like a one-year plan. And afterwards, he's going to choose. Esther, though, comes to the front of the line. She finds favor in this household. Interesting, though, is verse 10. It says, Esther did not make her people or uh, make known her people or her kindred. For Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. So she never let it be known that she was a Jew. Very interesting, makes us wonder why. It's really the opposite of Daniel, who in many ways flaunted his Jewish descent in the Gentile Empire. But the Babylonian Empire was much different than the Persian Empire. Likely, there's already some anti-Jewish sentiment going on when you compare Ezra to this book. Uh, there already were critics of the Jews throughout the empire. We can't say for sure, but Mordecai just felt it was more prudent for Esther to lay low when it comes to her lineage. One year goes by, like I said, that the length of that, the beauty regiment for these girls. But uh, by the end of it, like it says at the end of verse 15, Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. That phrase keeps coming up, those who find favor. God's people, Esther, Mordecai, they find favor. And then verse 17, she finds favor in the eyes of the king. And so 
he chooses her. Really think about that. Of all the people in the entire Persian Empire, they were sending girls from all the provinces, but this orphaned Jewish peasant girl, who happened to be from the same town, though, was was chosen to be the new queen of the largest empire of the ancient world. And so in this moment, Esther really joins Joseph and Daniel uh, of Jews in a foreign land who God raised up to positions of prominence, usually for a reason, for for such a time as this, as we'll find stated in chapter 4. Well, the king gives a banquet for Esther. You find there's a lot of banquets in this book. And most of the plot twists revolve around banquets. And we will see that shortly. For now, Esther is made queen. This is still set up, though. The plot is building. Now, one more huge piece of background comes at the end of chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. It almost in passing mentions how Mordecai overhears these two guys talking, and they're making a plot to kill the king. So he turns them in. It's found out to be true. Those men are executed. Mordecai is not rewarded. The king never knows Mordecai just saved his life. But his deed was recorded, it says, in the book of the Chronicles of the King. And that's that. Now, that's there for a reason. We might call that foreshadowing. That little record, that little book of Mordecai saving the king's life, it will come in handy later, as we'll see. You get into chapter 3, though. We've been introduced to our characters. Now you get the conflict now, where's this going? Well, there's a serious conflict, and it centers on this figure, Haman. We can read that the main part of the conflict, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. There's a little bit of important background here. First, you wonder, like, why did Mordecai refuse to bow down to Haman? He gives the answer in verse 4. He says, because he's a Jew. And we don't get the impression, though, that this is for religious reasons, but ethnic reasons. This brings us to the background of Mordecai and Haman. There's a a long-standing family feud between these two men. Back in chapter 2, verse 5, we learned Mordecai was a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin, descendant of Kish. Kish was Saul's father. So he's in in the family tree of King Saul. Haman, we learn in chapter 3, verse 1, is an Agagite. Back in the time of Saul, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites 
were the ancient enemies of Israel during the Exodus or on their way to the promised land, the Amalekites basically tried to attack and plunder the Israelites. And God cursed them from then on. The Amalekites would be cursed. And later, it was God who commanded King Saul to finish off the Amalekites and kill their king, who was Agag. But this is where Saul famously disobeyed. The kingdom was taken from him because he disobeyed. He, he did not carry out this order to finish off the Amalekites. It was the prophet Samuel who finally killed King Agag. Saul's failure, though, is what led to really the, the decline of the tribe of Benjamin, the rise of the tribe of Judah, all in God's providence. Here in Esther, though, we have two descendants of these two men. Mordecai is part of Saul's family tree. Haman is part of King Agag's family tree. He's a descendant of that King Agag. And you can probably see why when they learn of one another's lineage, they don't like each other. Haman does not just have a problem with Mordecai. He learns he's a Jew, and that, that really sets him off. These, were, these are the people who, who led to the decline of his people. And so he doesn't just want to take his hatred out on Mordecai, but on Mordecai's people, the Jews. These were the people who killed his people. He's going to exact his revenge. So Haman creates a plan to exterminate the Jews. Look at verses 8 and 9, chapter 3. It says, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a, a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Notice he doesn't tell the king the identity of this people. King doesn't seem to care or ask. Haman, at this point, he's essentially become number two in the kingdom. And so the king just grants him his request. The decree is, is issued. Notice how easily this king just signs into extermination this entire people group. But the decree is sent throughout the entire kingdom. What does the decree say? It's in verse 13. It says, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. This is... When this decree went out, it was basically a 11 months away. One day, basically the decree said, 11 months from now, let it be known that all the Jews are to be killed. So all the princes, all the provinces had essentially 11 months to prepare, to set their sights on the Jews. They would have one day where it would be legal to kill them all and take all their stuff as plunder. That's how he would pay this 10,000 talent bounty. Warning was given that they could be prepared. Chapter 4, the news of this decree spreads throughout all the provinces. Mordecai and all the Jews, they weep. They put on sackcloth. It's an image of repentance. They are fasting. They are presumably praying. I mean, surely they were seeking God's help for this injustice. Esther likewise learns what has been decreed, and she grieves for her people. And through a messenger, Mordecai pleads with Esther, like, hey, you're the queen now. 
talk to the king, change his mind. But she refuses. Why? Because it says in chapter 4, verse 11, you don't just waltz into this king's office and ask him something. If you approach him and he's not invited you, you die. Unless he holds out the golden scepter and just offers you mercy and lets you stay. So she's like, no, I I can't. I haven't seen him in 30 days. I'm not going to go talk to him. This is where Mordecai famously replies back to her through this messenger. uh, It's time to to risk your life for your people. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. It says, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai seems like he was being cunning and and wanting Esther to keep a lid on her ethnicity before. But now it's time for her to not be silent. He sees faith here. He knows God will deliver the people whether through Esther or through someone else. Why not through her? She's become queen after all. Perhaps it was for such a time as this. Well, Esther is convicted. She's emboldened. She replies back in verse 16 that she will do so. She says, if I perish, I perish. She's going to go to the king and make a request. She's going to plead for her people. And that's chapter five. Esther goes before the king. She is received. He extends the golden scepter. The king asks what she wants. He says up to half the kingdom. He does favor her. And at first she just replies that the king would come. The king and Haman would come to her banquet. That's all she asks. And so they do. And so at the banquet, the king asks her a second time. So what do you really want up to half the kingdom? And she replies back a second time. She just says, may the king and Haman come to my banquet tomorrow. The Persians, I guess, really love their banquets. They're just very cavalier with their banquets. Meanwhile, Haman believes Esther is throwing this banquet for him, to honor him. He goes home, he boasts to his family, like, hey, I got to go to this banquet. Just me and the queen, she only invited me. I was the only one there. That's chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. But at the same time, though, he tells his family, I can't enjoy it, though, because this Mordecai guy keeps bothering me. He won't bow down before me. His family says, basically, just kill him. So he, he builds 50 cubit high gallows to hang Mordecai. And he's going to ask the king for Mordecai's life the next day. He's, he's done with this Mordecai guy. Now the conflict really thickens because you have a threat now to all the Jewish people, but not directly to the life of Mordecai. And Here we are, five chapters in, there's no hope. There's no promise of resolution. I mean, what's going to happen? What's Esther even doing? It seems like she's just buying time. Does she have a plan? She's just inviting the king to more banquets. Like, what's she going to do to save and deliver her people? What could possibly be done now to spare Mordecai's life? I mean, Haman is second in the kingdom. If he asks for Mordecai's life, the king is just going to say, yes, Well, here we get to chapter 6, and we find a a big turning point, a hinge. And all hinges on chapter 6, verse 1. You can look there. It says, During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, 
and they were read before the king. Knowledge just revolves around the king not being able to sleep. Next time you're not able to sleep, just think God's hand of providence might be at work. In the king's case, it was. So what does he do? Well, he's probably trying to fall back asleep. So he asks for the most boring book they have. It's the Chronicles of the, the King. It seems pretty boring. He's probably trying to make him get back to sleep. And so they just read it before him. But that night, what do they just so happen to read in the book of the Chronicles of the King? Verse 2 it says, It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So he just so happens to read that night when he couldn't sleep that this guy Mordecai had saved his life and had never been honored. And it, he, it behooves him to honor people who save his life so that the next guy might do the right thing. And so he resolves to do something for him. But, but there's more. Look at verse 4. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. And so at the, the very moment the king resolves to do something, Haman basically walks into the courtyard And he was walking in to ask the king to hang Mordecai. But instead, the king, and the the two obviously didn't know this, but he had determined in his heart to honor Mordecai, the one he just read about. And he's actually going to make Haman do it. He looked down at verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? King asked him just an open-ended question like, what should I do to show someone honor? And Haman's thinking, well, he's talking about me, so he's going to give a good answer. And then he does, verses 7 through 9. Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed, And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes. And let them array the man whom the king desires to honor. And lead him on horseback throughout the the city square. And proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. I mean, that's what you do. You want to honor someone, this is what you do. And Haman's thinking, this is what's going to happen to me. But the king had someone else in mind. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, who's sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. And so the king makes Haman pull the horse and parade Mordecai around town saying, this is what happens to those who the king wants to honor. And so that's what he's at. He's forced to do so. After this, Haman runs, runs home. He's, he's mortified. He's humiliated. He tells his family. Even his family realizes, hey, this is bad news for you. This is a bad omen. Like, you're probably going down. <laughs> and just as the moment as he's complaining to his family, the king's eunuchs show up. It's like, hey, you've been invited to Esther's second banquet, remember? Day two banquet. Time to go. 
So off they take him. Chapter 7, we're at this next banquet. And the king, one more time, asks Esther, so what do you really want? You asked me for something. What do you want? Up to half the kingdom. And this time, the tables have turned. She's ready now to speak with boldness and and speak her peace, intercede for her people. And so look at verse 3 of chapter 7. It says, Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as, a, as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be worth me commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Hazarus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do this? Esther said, a foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. And then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. Remember, at this point, he did not know she was a Jew. He made this decree, and uh, he did not realize this was the queen. The tables have turned. Verse 7, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. And the roles have reversed. Now he's begging for his life from a Jew. Verse 8 says, Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face He's basically carted off. If you think the twists and turns are over, they're not. Verse 9 and 10 says, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows, standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good things on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. I mean, that the very same gallows he just built to kill his foe, he himself ends up getting hanged on. And so he meets his demise. And the threat against Mordecai's life is over. Chapter 8, Mordecai is honored in Haman's place. This great reversal, he's given Haman's household. Esther and Mordecai prosper even more. Mordecai set over the kingdom. He basically becomes that second in command. He takes basically a Haman's place. But the story's not quite over because we've resolved the minor conflict, but there's still that looming extermination of all the Jews. You know, the decree to kill all the Jews at this point, at this point, it's still about eight months out. So some time has elapsed. They still have time to try and reverse it. What are they going to do about this? Esther one more time, pleads in front of the king, chapter 8. The king grants her request, but here's, here's the problem. Any decree written in the name of the king cannot be reversed, ever. Persian law is law. You cannot undo it. You can't change it. And so he basically tells Mordecai, hey, you can create a new law to try and counteract it, but what's done is done. I cannot revoke the decree to kill all the Jews. So it stands. That being said, Mordecai, though, devises a solution to save the Jews. And so they issue 
a new decree, an additional decree, they send it to every province. And so what is the additional decree to try and save the Jews? Chapter 8, verse 11. It says this, it says, In them, the king granted to the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them including children and women, and to plunder their spoil on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, as the month Adar. It's called the right to bear arms, basically. He said the new decree, okay, the first decree still stands. Everyone has fair game to try and kill the Jews on this one day. Uh, But a new decree goes out and says, uh, but by the way, these Jews are now emboldened to defend themselves and even to kill their enemies. You still have eight months to go. At this new decree, the Jews rejoice and they prepare. And the people in the royal city of Susa and all throughout the kingdom, though, tables have really turned because the fear of the Jews has spread throughout all the land. Everybody knew Mordecai. uh, I'm sorry, Haman. Everyone knew he was second in command. And they learned how he opposed the Jews. And they learned how the queen is a Jew. And what happened to Haman? Like he got taken down pretty fast. And so the fear of opposing the Jews came upon everybody. All the princes of the land supported the Jews now. They were not going to lay a finger on them. They supported them. And so when the fated day came, eight months later, what happens on the day? The day comes, the day of, of battle. Well, chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the 12th month, that is the month Adar, on the 13th day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Hazarus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them. For the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. It's a a huge turn of events that they are the ones who prevail. On on the same day when they were supposed to be executed and plundered, they ended up getting rid of all of their enemies. It goes on to say that all throughout the kingdom, they struck down that day 75,000 enemies, those who wanted to kill them. They weren't being Capricious, they were going after those who hated them and wanted them dead. But it says they didn't touch any of the plunder. They did not plunder those who sought their lives. They also hanged the ten sons of Haman on the gallows. You see in chapter 9, verse 16, as it ends, uh, verse 16, 17 mentions how they, uh, they did not plunder their enemies, but they, they took them down essentially. And then verse 20 says, then Mordecai recorded these events. That's why we probably think Mordecai did write this book. And he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually, because on those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. They should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. 
And it goes on to show, verse 26 and later, this became the feast of Purim. The word pure means lots. You know, back in chapter 3, it was Haman who cast lots to try and divine on what day to kill the Jews. And the lots told him that 13th day of the 12th month. But the Jews knew that while men cast lots, God controls the outcome. And so they determined to remember this day of deliverance and and celebrate it. And so it became known as the Feast of Lots, meaning the Feast of Purim, the Feast of how God turned uh, their adversaries against them or for their good. Chapter 10 ends with a, a final word on the greatness of Mordecai, who was one great among the Jews and sought the welfare of his nation. And, and so it ends. So that is the book of Esther. It reads like a story. It's part of Israel's history. And because of that fact, it makes us wonder, though, what is the purpose? There's no direct teaching here. It's just narrative. But what is the purpose? And so let's, let's talk now. Purpose. It should be pretty clear, namely how God will sovereignly protect and preserve his chosen people, I mean, no matter their circumstance, even though they're scattered and under God's discipline, but because of his unconditional promises to Abraham, he will not put out the lamp of this people. He will not allow them to be cut off. He will fulfill his promises to them. And God shows in Esther once again, how it's easy for him to turn the hearts of the king and of the people for the benefit of his people. And it's easy for God to make a peasant girl queen for such a time as this. Now, that being said, there is one extremely critical fact to the book of Esther we've, we've overlooked. But it's crucial to understanding the nuanced purpose to Esther. Because look, other books of the Bible show how God sovereignly protects and preserves his people. Yeah. But none communicate them quite like Esther And that's because, I don't know if you picked up on this in all the verses we read and the verses we didn't read, but throughout the entire book, God is not mentioned once. There's no mention of God in the whole book. No name of God, no title of God, not even a reference to God. Nothing in the whole book of Esther. If you didn't notice that, just go back, read the book, and it will stick out at you like, hey, where's God here? This fact has plagued people for years, wondering, How could a book of the Bible not even mention God? Well, there's two actually, because Song of Solomon likewise does not mention God. This is why later on, some random person took the Greek version of Esther and added a bunch of verses, trying to make the people look more spiritual, added references to God, tried to, you know, make this less embarrassing, the fact that God's not even mentioned here. But no, we must accept scripture as it was given. And so it just leads us to genuinely wonder why We do have a book in the Bible that doesn't even mention God, that the Bible is supposed to be a pretty spiritual book. Now, look, if God wanted, he could have just as easily moved the author of Esther under inspiration to include plenty of references to God. So the real question we ask, coming from a place of of faith, why would God not do that? Why would he so inspire a book that had no references to God? The answer to that is actually, I think, pretty clear. Just, just remember, where was Israel at this moment? What was the status of most of the people? 
They were exiled, lost, scattered among foreign nations and cities. And where was their God? To them, it it appeared that God was absent, that he had abandoned them. God was invisible to them once again. His glory visibly left the temple. They they did not see their God anymore. They, They couldn't sense his presence. There's no more signs and wonders. I mean, they read the scriptures of these miraculous stories of his deliverance. Ten plagues, parting of the Red Seas, the walls of Jericho falling down. That all seems like ancient history. They, they don't see God act anymore. It seems like God's invisible and absent. But was, was God really absent? Was he gone? Yeah, it's true. He was no longer making himself visible to them because of their own disobedience. But he still promised he would never utterly forsake this people, even though they were unfaithful. And under his discipline, he would not cut them off. He would still protect them and preserve them. And Esther shows, however, that God can just as easily use his invisible hand to do that, to to protect them. God does not need to be seen to work. And you don't need to see God or hear his name to know he's at work. Though God is not mentioned in Esther, his unmistakable hand of providence is everywhere. There's no other explanation for the stunning amount of sheer coincidences, as some might say, in Esther, which took Israel, God's people, from the brink of its extinction and completely reversed their fortunes such that they plundered the Egyptians one more time, you might say. Haman's reversal, Mordecai's reversal, Esther's reversal. These all came about by by the providential, invisible hand of God. As one author put it, quote, the king's insomnia could just as easily bring deliverance as receding waters, end quote. I mean, just think if the king didn't have insomnia that one night, he wouldn't have read about Mordecai's deed. That means the very next day, would have been Mordecai hanging on those gallows. And the Jews themselves, likewise, would never have been delivered. They would have been exterminated. But do you think God can work in small ways just as much as he can in big ways? We're desperate for another parting of the Red Sea. We want God to do something big, but he already is just because you can't see it. That's what the prophet Elijah found out. When he was in despair, thinking God had abandoned Israel and and God showed him on on that mountain that he's not in the whirlwind, he was not in the earthquake, he was not in the fire, but God spoke to him in that still, small voice, the quiet whisper. And God was showing Elijah that sometimes he delivers through mighty acts of his outstretched hand. He'll, He'll do a sign and wonder, but at the same time, he often works through the faint whisper of his voice. But that whisper is still strong enough to move mountains. And overall, Esther shows that while men make plans, God controls the outcome. Men cast lots, but God draws the result. And no matter what the circumstances, God is always at work to fulfill his promises. His purposes can never be thwarted. Even when it seems like God is absent, even when his name is not known, He's still there. He's still working for his people, for his promises. You can count on that. It will always come to pass. And in Esther, that meant the deliverance of Israel from their enemies. 
means something to us as well, because our God is still providentially at work on our behalf. In fact, let's talk now as we finish up about providence as a special theme or special focus to the book of Esther. Providence, divine providence. We use providence as a related term to sovereignty, but it's kind of under the concept of sovereignty. God's sovereignty is his comprehensive control and rule over the universe. And providence is where God intervenes to fulfill his purposes. You have special providence. That's a miracle where God directly intervenes in an extraordinary way. But most often God works through what we call just general providence. He's just ordering events and circumstances to bring about his will. The world calls it coincidence or fate. And the Bible refers to his providence, or we would call it providence. God's hand from a theistic view, knowing God's in control. Yeah, he is a sovereign God. Nothing escapes his notice or control. We call that providence. And if you don't know what it means, just read Esther. And you're reading providence. The key phrase in this book is, it just so happened. It's almost like a little humorous nod from the author that, you know, there's really more than meets the eye here. You know, it just so happened that the king couldn't sleep. It just so happened Esther becomes queen. In fact, you see that this general providence all throughout Esther, Queen Vashti is removed at just the right time for Esther to be found. And then you know, Esther, who's made queen, and she just so happens to find favor among all these girls and among the king. She finds favor and becomes queen. This, this poor, orphaned Jewish girl. Then you have Mordecai just so happens to overhear a couple of guys plot against the king's life. And his deed just so happens to be recorded in the king's book. Later, the king, it just so happens he can't sleep. And he just so happens to read on that very night before Mordecai was about to be killed, the exact place in the book that records Mordecai's deliverance. And on it goes. Haman walks in. The, the precise moment uh, when the king desires to honor Mordecai or while Haman wanted to kill Mordecai. It just so happens. Haman just so happens to be hanged on his own gallows that he made for Mordecai. And on the same day, the, the very same day where the Jews were to be executed and plundered, it just so happens that they defeated their enemies as well. This is what the world would call coincidence. But when you have coincidence after coincidence after coincidence, just all in a row where if anyone fails, you don't get the end result. If any one of these coincidences failed, the Jews get exterminated, right? And so we start stringing them together like this. Even unbelievers realize, okay, there's something more going on here than meets the eye. They call it fate from an atheistic view. That's just their hearts cry that they know there's something going on. There is a greater power at work. Far better just to give God the glory and realize it's God. This is God's providence. He is ordering these events to bring about his purposes. And this is why the celebration of Purim fittingly comes from Esther. You know, in a sense, it's, it's an odd celebration to find in the Bible, one that celebrates luck. Because the casting of lots is basically you know, the luck of the draw. It's an act of, of luck. But Esther is making clear that Yeah, what you call luck is just God's providence. There's no such thing as the luck of the draw. 
Like Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And it was Haman himself who he cast lots superstitiously to determine when to execute the Jews. We see God controlled every single factor here and circumstance, and he reversed them all to lead to the preservation and prosperity of his people. And the end result, the festival of Purim, which means lots, is meant to be a time of feasting and rejoicing and celebrating because God reversed the fortunes of his people. He turned their fear and mourning into joy and triumph. And he turned their fasting into feasting. And speaking of feasting, again, that that theme runs throughout Esther. Each round of feasting in this book is connected to these great reversals. Vashti and Esther, Haman and Mordecai, the Jews and their enemies. That's what God does. He turns the fasting of his people, which was a sign of their mourning and their their fear of what was to come, their repentance. But he's a God who, who can turn fasting into feasting, who can diametrically change the, the, the fate of his people, you might say. And that's what the Feast of Purim is all about. And that likely is another purpose to this book, written that the Israel might know the origin of this feast and how it's a legitimate celebration for Israel. Purim, along with Hanukkah, are the only two feasts of Israel still observed today that come from outside the law of Moses. But although we are not national Israel, and so we're not beholden to celebrating the Feast of Purim, although you would not be wrong to remember God's providence on that day, still has great relevance for us in the church today, because as we read this narrative, we're really learning about God. God's not mentioned. He doesn't need to be. Because us, we who know his hand of providence, we can read it here. His fingerprints are scattered all throughout the book of Esther. And here we as the church know that we serve the same God. He still delivers his people. He's still using this force called providence to control the outcome of man's plans. And we can take comfort in that. In Romans eight twenty eight, God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And for his people, the church, we know God's purpose is to preserve us, to sanctify us, and to safely deliver us to his eternal kingdom. And that nothing can separate God's people from that kingdom. That doesn't mean you won't die. More than a few people have died because they follow Jesus. But doesn't Romans 8 also say that not even death can separate us? from the love of God that's in Christ. Nothing can stop us from God's eternal purposes. He will safely deliver you to that eternal kingdom. And the reason for that is God is for us. It's also Romans 8 verse 31. If God is for us, who can stand against us? The the only reason Israel was preserved in, in Esther was because God was for them. He was for them. He promised that. He bound himself. He will be for them. The same goes for all those who are in Christ. God is for you. If you're in Christ, the sovereign God of heaven is for you, which means he's now using his power and his providence for you to to guard you, to guide you, to sanctify you, to ultimately bring you to glory. And so knowing that, reading a book like Esther, you see how easy it is for God to just line up all the circumstances to bring about 
his purposes. What are you so worried about? What do you got to fear? God's in control. He will work it out for good. You just need to trust him. We say it flippantly, but it shouldn't be. Just a deep-seated trust in God that can't be shaken. That's based on books like Esther, where you've seen it time and time again in Scripture. We likewise live in a time where we don't see God. We don't see his direct intervention in the world. People desperate to see a miracle. But you don't need to. God is still using every circumstance, every election, every pandemic, everything. He's using it for his plans. He's lining up every circumstance for his glory, for the good of his people, for the return of Christ. These plans will result in and the eternal glory of his people. So don't fear. Just trust this God. Hope in his promises. He will turn all of your fasting into feasting one day. That's the message of Esther. Well, we could say more, but we're not because it's six o'clock and we got to go. And so let me close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we do praise you as our, our unseen God. But Lord, that's the essence of faith that we, we don't see yet we believe. We trust in the God who we've not seen visibly, but we see you by faith. We see you revealed on the pages of scripture. And even a book like Esther where your name isn't found, we see you there too because we know our God. We, we know his handiwork. We see his fingerprints. We know where to find him and we find him in Esther, Lord. We praise you for your providence. The fact that even when your people can't tell, you're working. We thank you that your word encourages us, promises us that you're working. May we just take comfort in that as we are meant to rest in the knowledge that you are preserving us. You will deliver us. Help us to be faithful until then and, uh, and always devoted to Christ until he returns. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.